Amen. Oh. Man, you know it's going to be a hard morning to get through when you're crying through half of the songs. Oh, my word. Whew. Uh, Sam, thank you for leading us this morning. Oh, thank you, Chapel Band, for leading us. Our Savior is worthy of praise. Amen? Our Savior is worthy of praise for who he is and for what he's done, for everything that there is to know about him in his word. He is worthy of every affection that we have to give. And so this morning, that's going to be our prayer, that we would praise forever the worthy one of heaven. If you have your copy of God's word, take it and turn with me to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. While you're turning there, uh, I want to talk about my family. Uh, we play a game pretty much every time we watch a movie or a television show where we ask our kids after the show is over or the movie is over, we ask our kids, what was the main point? What are they preaching? What do the people who wrote this, made this, uh, what are they wanting you to take away from this? I want my kids to have a worldview where they can understand they're always being preached to, they're always being told uh, by movies, by music, by television, by commercials, uh, what their worldview should be, what they should believe. So I always ask them, what's the theme? What's the point? What's the, what's the purpose? Sometimes it's obvious, right? Sometimes when you watch a movie, like pretty much every Pixar movie has a very distinct purpose, theme, story, and uh, a point. Sometimes you get to the end of a movie, I don't know if you've had this experience, and you go, what was the point of that? This wasted two hours of my life that I'll never get back. I don't understand at all what they were thinking. Sometimes that happens when you're watching a commercial, right? You watch a commercial and you, you wonder, who allowed this to be made, right? What, who was in the, the pitch meeting for this and said, this is a good idea? Like, who thought this was okay? What's the theme? What's the point? This morning, I want to ask the question based off of God's word, what is the theme of heaven? What's the point of heaven? What's the main motivation for everything that we do when we are there? What is the theme of heaven? I believe the Bible is incredibly clear on this fact. The theme of heaven is salvation, namely praising God for his offer of redemption and his purchasing us through his blood, and his sanctifying us and bringing us safely home. The theme of heaven is Christ and the salvation that he has won for us. And I believe that we will see that here in these verses at the end of Revelation chapter 7. So let's read starting in verse 9 all the way to the end of the chapter and then ask God's blessing on our time. Revelation chapter 7 verse 9. After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and every tribe and every people and tongue, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne. And to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, these who are clothed in white robes, who are they and where have they come from? And I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. For this reason, they're before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore. 
nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat, because the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God himself will wipe every tear from their eyes. Father, we gather in your name And just reading these words just takes our breath away. The reality of this being our eternal home, this being our destination, one day we will have these words being spoken over us, true about us. Father, I know that there are many in this room who have shed many tears this last week. Suffering and sorrow, despair, trials, And you promise that one day you will wipe away every tear. Father, I pray that you would help us this morning. Give us a glimpse of heaven. May we be able to feel with some portion of our souls what it will be like to be there. And have you spread your tabernacle over us so that we can dwell in safety. Give us Give us a taste this morning that we would be able to taste and see of the goodness of God. And as we do, we would not look to anything else to be satisfied. That we would live today in light of that day. That we would live today in light of eternity. God, motivate us. Change us. Affect us. Don't let us walk out these doors unaffected. Sober our minds. Quicken our spirits. And give us a greater love for Christ. Make us long for him this morning. We pray, Holy Spirit, as we pray every Lord's Day, open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your word. Show us Christ. We pray it all in his name. Amen. Revelation chapter 7, this section gives us four aspects of salvation, specifically that's seen in heaven. Four aspects of the theme of salvation that's seen in heaven. We're going to start just in the beginning of verse 9 by looking at number 1, the recipients of salvation. The recipients of salvation. John says, after these things, after looking at the 144,000 and seeing everything that happened with the Jewish people who were sealed, who were saved, who were set apart. I looked and behold, a great multitude was there in heaven before him. He could see them. Couldn't count them, but he could see them. Now, we have to stop right there and ask the question, who is this great multitude? We're going to look at it in in a lot more depth this morning, but right off the bat, we we have to uh, just talk about the various interpretations of this. Uh, There are different ideas as to who these people are. I just want to give you three. They're all within the camp of the gospel, okay? These are brothers and sisters. We we don't all agree on our interpretation of who these people are. That's okay. This isn't a gospel issue. If you see the Bible as teaching uh, an all-millennial perspective that uh, we'll look at this in depth in Revelation chapter 20, but if you see the Bible as teaching that there is nothing that's going to happen after Jesus comes back as far as his ruling and reigning in a thousand-year kingdom on earth, you would instead see that this period of time is the church age, which is also the kingdom age of Jesus. If you see the Bible teaching that, you would just see this multitude being the entirety of the church throughout the entirety of the church age. You actually would have seen the 144,000 as just a representation of the church in the church age. So we would differ on that. Again, this isn't a gospel issue. We would differ on that. It's a hermeneutical, biblical interpretation issue. But these are brothers and sisters who uh, we love, we respect, we honor. They love Jesus. They would just see this a little bit differently. A second option has to do not with the timing or the events of the millennial kingdom. It has to do with the timing and the events of the, the rapture. Uh, the all-millennial perspective and position does not believe in a rapture. If you are pre-millennial, which I am, that Jesus will return right before the millennial kingdom, he will establish his thousand-year reign as stated in Revelation 20, 
if you are pre-mill, you are probably also going to be believing in this thing called the rapture, which we haven't studied too much of because it's really not in Revelation, unless you hold to a mid-trib rapture, middle-of-the-tribulation rapture, or a pre-wrath rapture. If you hold to a middle-of-the-tribulation rapture, by the way, uh, there are four main views, pre-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath, and post-trib, and it's all a reference to the timing of the rapture. Does the rapture happen pre-tribulationally, mid-tribulationally, pre-wrath, or post-tribulationally? If you believe in the mid-trib view of the rapture, that somewhere in the middle of the uh, Daniel's 70th week, this seven-year period of tribulation, if you believe in the mid-trib view or if you believe in the pre-wrath view, you would see that this as the rapture. You would see these people, this multitude, as the rapture. Again, believers in Jesus Christ that love the Lord, that love his word, it's not a gospel issue, we would just differ on it. I hold to a pre-trib view, and I see the Bible teaching a pre-tribulational rapture, that the rapture happens right before that first seal that we talked about. It begins Daniel's 70th week. Remember, uh, the church age is done, right? The church age is done. Uh, Daniel chapter 9, God says to Daniel, uh, 70 weeks have been decreed. There's the 70th week, a period of seven years. And that period of seven years is for you, your people, and your holy cities, for the Jews. So the, the church is removed, I believe, before the tribulation begins, before Daniel's 70th week. And so therefore, you're not going to see these people as raptured saints because the rapture's already happened. Now, again, another sermon for another time. We'll talk about the rapture. We'll talk about the tribulation and the timing of those things. But just for this morning, in Revelation chapter 9, go to verse 4. Revelation chapter 9, verse 4. Here's just one reason in context why I don't believe what we're looking at this morning is the rapture. Because remember, beginning of chapter 7, 144,000 Jewish people are sealed. They're believers. Remember, they're believers and they're sealed for the purpose of God that God is not going to pour out wrath on them. They're going to be protected throughout the remainder of this tribulation period. Verse 4, they were told, these are the uh, demon locusts that we're going to look at in a few weeks. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So, this is the fifth trumpet. This is after Revelation 7. This is further into Daniel's 70th week. And the 144,000 are still there. So, if the 144,000, Revelation chapter 7, they are saved and they're sealed by God, and then, if we are going to say that the rapture then occurs, these 144,000 people should be raptured as well, because they're believers. All believers will be raptured. But we see them after Revelation chapter 7 in this uh, tribulation, seven-year tribulation period, Daniel's 70th week. We see them still there. And there is no comment in the Bible that would say these 144,000 are going to miss the rapture and exist through the tribulation. All believers will be raptured. So my question is, if the rapture has already happened, why did they miss it? Because clearly they did in Revelation chapter 9. So I do not believe that Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17 speaks of the rapture. So the question is then, who is this speaking of? I believe that this is speaking of Gentile and Jewish believers who have died either through natural deaths or through martyrdom during the period of the first six seals coming out of the great tribulation. It's almost, you can hear the question in John's mind, right? John says, uh, God's purposes for the Jews needs to be fulfilled, and he sees with the 144,000 that that purpose is going to be fulfilled. God's going to bring salvation to his people. He's going to give them a kingdom. It's almost as if John's asking, so does that mean God's plan for the Gentiles is over? And this is the answer, no. Salvation's coming to everyone. Salvation's coming to everyone. The beginning of chapter 7 is about the Jews. The rest of chapter 7 is about the rest of the world. This is really kind of the parallel of Romans chapter 9 through 11. In Romans 9 through 11, Paul says, now, currently in the church age, God has allowed Israel to harden their hearts, and the gospel has gone to the Gentiles. But, Paul says, that doesn't mean there aren't any Jews getting saved. So, too, in the tribulation period in Daniel's 70th week, the Jews will be getting saved on a massive scale. 
But that doesn't mean that God's not going to save Gentiles. John sees this great multitude, which no one can count, from every nation, every tribe, every people, every tongue. This was God's intention from the beginning. Let me just give you a couple verses. Genesis chapter 22, verses 17 through 18. The same word that's used in the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Old Testament's written in Hebrew and Aramaic. Greek translation of the Old Testament, we find the exact same word for nations, ethnos, in Genesis chapter 22. And it's when God's speaking to Abraham, saying, Abraham, through your seed, through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Genesis 26, verse 4 says the same thing. Genesis 28, 14 says the same thing. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. God says that the gospel, the message that was going to be given to the Jews, but they're going to reject, is going to go throughout the whole world to the most remote and difficult parts of the earth. Where only darkness exists, God says light's going to go. Matthew 24, Jesus himself said that the gospel will be preached in all of the world and then the end will come. This is a fulfillment of what Jesus said. Now, in the 1970s, there was a, a revolution with regard to world missions. And before 1970, the idea of nation, uh, the church just thought of nation as either a political entity or just basically two definers for uh, what a nation is. Ask people pre-1970, what's a nation? And they would say either somebody who's involved in the UN, somebody who has a seat in the UN, or somebody who qualifies for the FIFA World Cup, right? Those are all, our only two qualifications for what comprises a nation. After the 1970s, as we understood this word nation a lot more clearly biblically, we realized that's not what John was referring to. Before the 1970s, we as a church, globally, we thought that the gospel had gone to every nation. We had reached every nation. Every single people group had been reached. Uh, by, the, by the way, the, the word reached would be that there's a church in that language, in that people group that can replicate itself. It's reached. We thought that that had happened. But in 1970, there was a huge revolution to realize, wait, we haven't done that. Not every people group has a Bible. Not every people group has a church. So John here sees every single people group, every nation, that's ethnos, ethnic group, every tribe, that's a little bit smaller, people, that's a little bit smaller, tongues, that's even smaller. Every single language is represented before the Lamb. The Lord is more glorified through diversity than he is through sameness. We even sang it this morning, three in one, three distinct persons in one Godhead. God loves unity through diversity. And so the gospel draws people from every language, every nation, every people group. Notice, by the way, what word is not on this list? The word race. Because race doesn't come from the Bible. Race is a sociological evolutionary invention. There's no biological reason for race. Race has always been used to de deprive people of rights, to withhold rights from people. But there's no scientific basis for it at all. There's a cultural reality of differences in people groups that's best described by this word, ethnic group. There's different ethnic groups. So my question is, how are they all going to be represented before the Lord in heaven? I think two reasons. Number one, we've talked about this before at our church. I think the Bible is emphatically clear that babies who die in infancy, they go to heaven. I think the Bible is emphatically clear about that. In fact, I would say if you believe in the Trinity, you have even more biblical evidence to believe that babies go to heaven when you die, when they die. So if a baby from a certain tribe who speaks a certain language goes to heaven when they die, they will be representing that language in heaven. Secondly, Jesus promised it. We read it last week, Matthew 28. Go into all the world, make disciples, and he promised in Matthew 16 that as we do that, the gates of hell will not prevail against the gospel. Just imagine how profound of an encouragement this would have been to John. John's on the Isle of Patmos. He is exiled for believing in the gospel. He's afraid that the churches are just dying out there in Asia Minor, literally and spiritually. And then he's told, one day before the Lamb, a countless multitude will be there. 
the church shall never perish, her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish. He is with her to the end. Though there be those that hate her and false sons in her pale against the foe or traitor, she ever shall prevail. Amen? Nothing can stand against the church of God. Even the worst possible time period in all of human history, in Daniel's 70th week, we expect the gospel to prevail. We are, as Charles Spurgeon said, greedy for souls. When we go out into the world and we proclaim the gospel, we're greedy for souls. We want people to know Christ. So my question is, do you belong to this crowd that will ultimately be in heaven? Do you belong to the crowd that has had your robes washed white with the blood of Christ? See, this is the beautiful thing with regard to interpretation. However you view this passage, yes, it affects timing, and it affects affects your timetable and your timeline of the events, but it doesn't impact at all the point and the theme of this passage. So first, we see the recipients of salvation, the recipients of salvation. Number two, Secondly, we see praise for salvation. Praise for salvation. This is the middle of verse 9 down to verse 12. They're standing before the Lamb. You remember that was the question at the end of Revelation chapter 6. Who can stand? The wrath of God is being poured out. Who can stand? This word's the same word. They can stand. They're in the process of standing before the, the Lamb. They're clothed in white robes. And they have palm branches in their hands. They're clothed with white robes. Now, I don't know if this necessitates them having a body. I don't think that they have a body. We saw the martyred souls earlier in Revelation. They don't have a body. They're given a white robe. We're not told if they wear the white robe. Don't know really how you wear a robe if you don't have a body. But God does it, right? Remember Isaiah chapter 6? Isaiah sees the train of the robe of God filling the temple. So God has a robe, God wears a robe, and God's spirit doesn't have a body. So there's a way in which this is possible. I mean, how do you give a white robe to a martyred soul that has no hands? Just drop it. Like, how how do you do that? Like, here, pick it up when you get a body. I don't know. Like, you just hover over your robe. Don't touch it. That's mine. Just wait. Hang on. I got my body. Grab it. Put it on. Same thing with hands. Uh, God doesn't have hands. God doesn't have a face. And yet he tells uh, Moses, "You, you can't look upon my face. You can look upon my back. I don't know how this works, but they're doing it. They have white robes. Matthew 22, Jesus gives a parable that if you want to enter the wedding feast, you have to wear the right attire. The only way you get into heaven is by wearing a white robe. I love that. It doesn't matter what your skin color is. We're all in need of the blood of Christ to cleanse us and wash us from our sins. This is the same word, by the way, robe, that was used in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, to speak of the robe given to the martyrs. That's why, even though it doesn't explicitly say these are martyrs, I think that these are uh, made up of some martyrs because they're given this robe. It's a festive garment. It's a garment of joy and celebration. So, too, holding palm branches. You remember that from Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. Victory, declaring victory. The king has come. The king has conquered. Also, a reference to the Feast of Tabernacles, the Festival of Booze, the Sukkot, when you would celebrate the harvest has come in. We've done the work, and now we get to enjoy. Just think of the beauty of that analogy. We've done the work on earth, the harvest has been brought in, and now we can rest. That's exactly what's happening for all of eternity. We've done the work on earth, now we can rest in heaven. Just think about the people in Palm Sunday. Hosanna, Hoshana, save us now. And here, waving palm branches, you did save us. You have saved us. It's done. You brought us safely home. They're rejoicing. They worship continually. They cry out, verse 10, with a loud voice. Literally, it's in the present tense. They keep continually crying out with a loud voice. They can't stop saying this. And what's their theme? What's their song? Salvation belongs to our God. Heaven is going to be amazing for so many reasons, but one of the reasons why it's going to be amazing is because self-sufficiency will finally be eradicated completely. Salvation belongs to God. 
The only reason why we're there in heaven is because of God, not because of anything we did. Salvation's all of God. It belongs to God. Salvation is God's victory. Anyone being in heaven is a miracle, and God makes it happen. So, as the redeemed continually praise God, salvation belongs to our God and to the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. As the redeemed sing, they bring about a choir around them. I love verse 11. All the angels standing around the throne, they don't know, by the way, what salvation is experientially. They don't need to be saved, but they can see, remember uh, Jesus tells us Luke 15, that when one sinner repents, all of heaven rejoices. So imagine this multitude of repentant sinners entering into their eternal home. Just how loud this is. This has got to be one of the loudest scenes in the world. No wonder we have to have glorified bodies because our eardrums would be exploding. The angels are standing around the throne, around the elders, the four living creatures. They fell to their faces before the throne and they worship God saying, amen. They start and end with the word amen. Let it be so. It is true. Salvation is all of God. It's only of God. It is true. And then they give seven different attributes. Each of them, my Bible doesn't have it with the definite article. In Greek, it's the definite article. So it's all of these things. All of the blessing, all of the glory, all of the wisdom, all of the thanksgiving, all of the honor, all of the power, all of the might be to our God forever and ever. Seven of them. Blessing, that's the Greek word uh, where we get eulogy from. It's eulogia. It's to pronounce commendation and praise. Glory, it's weightiness. Uh, exaltation of Christ. Wisdom is Sophia. It's intellectual, logical reasoning. Thanksgiving, that's where we get our word uh, Eucharist from. It's Eucharisto. It's to bless. It's to praise. It's to give thanks. Honor. In the Greek world, this is uh, a word that be, could be interchanged with a, a price value, something that's uh, honorable, has value, has weightiness to it. How much value it has. How much value does Christ have? Power is omnipotent strength. It's not physical power or force, but intrinsic worth and value and authority and might is the word for physical force, absolute physical strength. Seven attributes. Seven represents perfection. So just God is perfect in everything that he does, and all of these things are, res are responding to the theme of salvation, that God himself has brought about salvation. They can't stop praising. And I, I just, I, I, I can't get this picture out of my mind. This enormous multitude singing and crying out. The angels listening, and they start singing and crying out. The multitude hears that and must go, let's go again. And they start singing. The angels start singing. I mean, this is just singing constantly, praising God for who he is and for what he's done. So we see, number one, the recipients of salvation. We see, number two, praise for salvation. Number three, we see the means of salvation. The means of salvation. This is verses 13 through 14. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, those who are clothed in white robes, who are they and where have they come from? And John answers, and this is one of my favorite responses in the whole Bible. This, this elder asks, who are these people? John doesn't know, but John doesn't want to say he doesn't know. So what does he say? Uh, you know, Right? You ask the question, you give the answer. I love this. This is like, you remember Sunday school? Remember when you were a kid? If you grew up in the church, you grew up in Sunday school. There were only ever two answers, right? For every question that was ever given. Two right answers, and no matter how you answered, you got the answer right. The answer is always either Jesus or Jesus knows, right? Whatever question, try it. Whatever question. Uh, you know, where does the devil go? When uh, all of eternity or all of human history ends, where does the devil go? Jesus? No, that doesn't work. Uh, Jesus knows. Yeah, Jesus knows. Every, every question could be answered with that answer. I think that's what John's doing here. I have no idea. You know. I don't know, but you know. This is also seen in Ezekiel. You remember when God says to Ezekiel, uh, look at the, the valley of dry bones. Look at those bones. Can anybody bring those bones back to life? Give them flesh. Give them skin and let them live again. Can anybody do that? And uh, Ezekiel's answer is, you know. <laughs> I, I don't know. And God says, you're right. I do know. And he gives them life. He breathes life back into them. My question is, why doesn't John know who these people are? Why doesn't John instantly know? 
Well, number one, I think the location of the scene. He would expect multitudes to be ruling and reigning with Christ on earth. So this is a little bit of a different scene for him. Number two, the timing of this. This is explicitly the great tribulation. So John hasn't met any of these people. He doesn't know why they're there. He doesn't know where they've come from. Number three, the number. Jesus had taught that a few would find the narrow road, right? Also in John's day, there were only a few churches that were not that large. And so for John to see this multitude, that, that would be shocking to him to realize all of these people got saved. And then number four, the different ethnicities. That's overwhelming. Since he had just seen 144,000 Jewish people being saved, he would not be expecting uh, this enormous group of people that are from every ethnic group. But I think John should have known, which is why the elder asks the question. I think John should have known. Why should John have known who these people were? Well, because John saw the vision earlier in chapter 6 where the martyrs say, how long until you avenge our blood? And God says, just a little while longer because there's a number of martyrs left and they need to die before I bring about judgment. They need to die. And so I think these, some of these, many of these probably are martyrs during that time of the great tribulation. So John's seen the fulfillment of what God said in chapter 6. There were really two main unfulfilled prophecies when you get to the entirety of the book of Revelation. Number one, the Jews haven't been saved yet. And number two, the gospel hasn't gone to the whole world yet. And Revelation chapter 7 says yes to both of those. The Jews are being saved and the gospel's gone to the whole world. Verse 14 after he says, my Lord, you know, I don't know. The elder says, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. Literally, in Greek, it's who keep coming. It's, a, it's in participle form. It's, they, they're continually coming. They're, they're, it's not just a one-time event. Another reason why I don't think this is the rapture. It's not just a one-time event. It's continually coming, right? You see, you know, poof, here comes another one. Here comes another one. Here comes another one. They're just continually coming from the earth into heaven. And they're coming out of the great tribulation. That's from Matthew chapter 24, verse 21. Jesus coined the term great tribulation to speak of the second half of the seven-year period. But then he says this. They've come out of the great tribulation and they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And it is for this reason that they're before the throne of God. The only way they can be there is because they wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb. That's why I call this third point, number three, the means of salvation. How can anyone get to heaven? It's only by the washing of the blood of Christ so that your sins, though scarlet, would be made as white as snow. You would be made as white as snow. Your robes have to be washed. Charles Spurgeon says it this way. They have washed their robes and made, made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Not one of them became white through his tears of repentance. Not one through the shedding of the blood of bulls or of goats. They all wanted a vicarious sacrifice. And for none of them was any sacrifice effectual except the death of Jesus Christ the Lord. They washed their robes nowhere but the blood of the Lamb. This is what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 1. In verse 18, God says to Isaiah, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. They're, they're, though they're red like crimson, they will be like wool. It's only because of that that, any, that anyone can go to heaven. So again, I ask, will you be present in heaven? Have your robes of unrighteousness been cleansed? Have you been given a new garment that's been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb? If you have not trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, then you will not be present here before God in heaven. Finally, number four, we see the satisfaction of salvation. We've seen the recipients of salvation, the praise for salvation, the means of salvation, and the satisfaction, number four, of salvation. This is the end of verse 15 all the way through the end of the chapter in verse 17. They've been washed white. Uh, the robes have been washed white. They've been sanctified. They're going to be serving. You can see here in verse 15, they serve God day and night. There is no day and night in heaven. This is just a, a, an expression to say continually, constantly serving in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. So they're sanctified. They're serving. By the way, this helps us. We're not only going to be singing in heaven. We're going to be serving as well. 
And we're never going to get bored in heaven. We're constantly serving. You, you don't need a break from serving either. You just get to keep serving. You, you never wear out. You never get tired. You also experience no periods of uselessness before the Lord. You just serve. You're safe. You're safe. God stretches out his tabernacle. That's a tent to protect you from harm. He stretches out his tabernacle over you. Then verse 16. Look at the safety that we will experience in heaven. Verse 16. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. This is a direct quotation from Isaiah 49, verse 10. There's one difference. In Isaiah 49, verse 10, it says all the same words except for one. It doesn't include, in verse 16, the word anymore. Isaiah 49, verse 10 says God's people will be given shelter in this life, will be protected in this life, will be kept safe in this life from certain aspects, but they will experience suffering and trial. They will experience despair and sorrow. But in the next life, they will not experience any of it ever again anymore. It's all gone. We also see this in Isaiah 25, verse 8, when uh, their tears will be wiped away by God. It's restated in Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 through 4. God brings them into a shelter. Think about, I, I think that this language is so specific to the time of tribulation that they were going through. In Daniel's 70th week, we've gone through those seals that they experienced. They will hunger no more. I think that's in relation to the third seal. They will thirst no longer. That's in relation to the fourth seal. The sun will not beat down on them any longer. That's in relation to the seventh seal. God takes them out and saves them and keeps them protected. This is such a beautiful picture. Uh, Once Daniel's 70th week starts, the question is, can anyone be saved? Revelation says, yes. People are being saved all around the world. They're given sanctification, they're serving, they're safe, and then they're shepherded. Verse 17, the lamb who is in the center of the throne will be their shepherd. What a paradox. We we already saw one paradox. Take your robes, dip them into blood, pull them out, and they're white. That's impossible, other than this is the blood of Christ. And then here's a beautiful paradox. The sheep will be the shepherd. The lamb will be the shepherd. Sheep need shepherds right? Sheep don't do the shepherding. They need shepherding. And yet this lamb will shepherd us. He became fully human, truly human, to live as a sheep, to live like one of us. And then he was the lamb who was slaughtered. He's the lamb who has been raised never to die ever again. And look what he will do. He will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of the water of life. He'll offer them food, water, shade, protection. This is what a shepherd does, and Jesus himself will do that with us. John chapter 4, you remember he told the woman at the well, I will give you a, a fountain of living water that will flow inside of you, and you'll never, ever lose that satisfaction ever again. He is the perfect picture of Psalm 23, lived out for all of eternity. And then... It says at the very end, God himself will wipe every tear from their eyes. There's so much that could be said about this statement. But just just one thing. Some people say heaven seems like it's going to be a very long time. Eternity seems long, boring. I'm going to get bored. I think one of the reasons why we need eternity is because we need a very long time for God to do this at the end of chapter 7. Because I don't think it's just wipe the tear, wipe the tear, wipe the tear. Hey, be happy. You're in heaven. Come on, stop crying. I think what God's doing here is he's individually and personally going to you and to me. And he's going back to every single trial we've ever had, every single suffering that we've ever gone through, every sorrow we've ever felt, every despair we've ever known. And he's reminding us it wasn't purposeful. There was a reason for it. I think he's telling us what those reasons are. I think inside of this verse is all of us saying, that's what you were doing. 
That's what you were doing. When, when that trial happened and I thought, I can't handle this ever again. I can't handle this anymore. I'm done. God, what are you doing? How many times have you prayed that prayer? God, what are you doing? I think heaven will be an experience of God saying, here's what I was doing. Here's the impact that that brought. Here's the salvation that came. Here's the glory I received. And I think all of us will gladly have no more tears because we'll be saying, it all makes sense. That's what you were doing. It makes sense. He knows every tear you've ever cried. He holds it personally in a bottle. The psalmist says that. And he will give you an answer. He will tell you what all of these tears meant and then wipe them all away. Notice also in verses 16 through 17, there are seven promises. Seven promises given in these verses. Again, seven, number of completion. Everything about heaven will be perfectly complete. Verse 16, they'll hunger no longer, they'll thirst no more, the sun won't beat down on them, no more heat, the lamb's in the center of the throne and he's going to shepherd them, he'll guide them to the springs of the water of life and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So, we've seen the recipients of salvation, we see the praise for salvation, we've seen the means of salvation, and then finally, we've seen the satisfaction that salvation for all of eternity will bring. So, in conclusion... I just want to give you three main implications that I think jump right off of this, this text. Number one, I think this text would teach us to faithfully share the gospel. Number one, faithfully share the gospel. Revelation chapter 7, we're getting close to the task of missions being done. For us today, it's nowhere near being finished. Just think about these statistics from five years ago. There are 6,672 unreached people groups in the world, meaning they don't have a church in their language. They might have a Bible in their language, but they don't have anybody to be able to walk them through that Bible and help them make disciples. If you add all of those people groups up, it's about 3 billion people, or 42% of the world's population. Again, this is five years ago. Almost half of the world's population is unreached. That, that cannot sit well with us. We, we need to have a visceral reaction to the fact that we can gather every Lord's Day with seven Bibles on our shelves. We can just pick which one. What translation? What do we want? And there are almost half of the world unable to do that. So what do we do? Number one, we either go and I believe some of you will be called by God to go as missionaries into the world. Go. Not in a way of like go to a short-term missions trip to have a vacation with your best friends. No, go. Be doing the serious work of evangelism. Some of you need to give. Some of you shouldn't go, but you should stay and you should give. I love this. In, in Romans chapter 15, Paul says he wants to go to an unreached place. He wants to go where the gospel is not gone. But then he writes the letter to tell the people in Rome, please don't go with me. Because if we all go, who's sending us? Where's the funding? Where's the support? I'll go, you send. So either you're going or you're giving or you're disobeying. Those are your only three options. Either you are sent or you're the sender or you're disobeying. So what about you today? Do you faithfully share the gospel? I mean, like every day, are you telling people about Jesus? Do you share Christ? One of the beautiful things about this passage and the whole of the Bible is that God has people out there that he has saved through his work on the cross. They're just waiting to hear that message of the gospel. We're guaranteed success in our evangelism, whether it's God being glorified in our faithfulness or whether it's souls being saved, we're guaranteed success. And if you choose not to do it, again, that's just disobedience, but God's going to receive the reward that he deserves for his sufferings. Remember our study in Esther, where Mordecai says to Esther, hey, you need to go, you need to talk to the king, we're all going to die. And she says, eh, I don't know, she's struggling with it. Mordecai doesn't say, come on, Esther, hurry up. What does Mordecai say? Hey, if it's not you, it's somebody else. God's going to save us. If you want to be used by God, do it. If you don't want to be used by God, okay, that's on you. But God's going to save us, whether it's through you or through somebody else. 
He's going to say, what a privilege that he chooses you and me to be ambassadors of his gospel message. Number one, we should faithfully share the gospel. Number two, I think that this text reminds us that we should prepare for suffering knowing that Jesus is better than life. Prepare for suffering knowing that Jesus is better than life. People in chapter 7, people in chapter 6, people around the world today, our brothers and sisters, we prayed for them even in our prayer time this morning at 9.30. We were praying for our brothers and sisters around the world who are losing their lives because they believe in Jesus Christ. And you and I need to be prepared to do the exact same thing. But my question to you is, do you believe that there is something better for you after death than what you have in this life? Because if you don't believe that, then you're not going to want to die for Christ. If you don't genuinely believe, Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, to live as Christ and to die as gain, take everything that I lose in this life uh, through my death and just give me Jesus in the next life, and I've gained. I haven't lost, I've gained. We need to be prepared for suffering. And we need to be prepared to use our suffering to evangelize the world, to show them that Jesus is better. So faithfully share the gospel, prepare for suffering. But finally, number three, I think one of the implications of this text is that we must meditate daily on heaven. We must meditate every day on the glory of heaven. In Pilgrim's Progress, you remember that book by John Bunyan, Christian is asked by one of his friends, when do you find yourself in your most wholesome and most vigorous state? When do you run the race well? You're going to the celestial city. When do you find yourself running the fastest? And his answer is so profound. When I think of the place to which I'm going. That's when I run. Sadly, I think most Christians are more like the cynical Mark Twain, who when told about heaven, flippantly said, fine, you can have heaven, I'd rather take Bermuda. You take heaven, I'd rather stay here and enjoy Bermuda. Do you think on heaven often? Do you think of heaven often? Peter Kreef says it this way, otherworldliness is escapism only if there is no other world. If there is another world, then it's worldliness that is escapism. You catch that? Otherworldliness. If you just are constantly thinking about heaven, some people say, you're no earthly good. It's escapism. Well, it's only escapism if there is no other world. But if there is another world, then just to dwell on this world, that's true escapism. To neglect what's actually going to be happening for all of eternity in heaven. There was a boy who was standing outside of his house on the front porch waiting for his dad to come home. His dad took a little longer than it expected than he expected, so it was dark when his dad got home. And he said to his son, son, what are you doing? Because he could see his son waiting for him on the front porch, but his hands were held up in two fists. And he walked up to his son, he said, son, what are you doing? And his son said, I was waiting for you, and I got bored, so I started flying a kite. And his dad, since it was dark, said, I don't see a kite. Where's the kite? trying to look out into the darkness to see it. And his son said, oh, you can't see it, but trust me, it's there because I feel the tug. I feel the tug. My friends, can I ask you, do you feel the tug of heaven? Do you feel it? You can't see it. You know it's coming, but do you feel the tug? Are your hands holding on so tightly that you can feel it, you can sense it, we're going to be there sooner than we expect. I can't wait to be there. I want to be with Jesus. I want to be with Jesus. I just want to be with him for all of eternity. I don't ever want to leave. I'm going to be the most annoying person in heaven. Like everybody's waiting in line to talk to Jesus, and I'm like, nope, hang on. I still have more questions. Just at his feet. Don't, don't, don't kick me away. Don't send me away. You have all of eternity. Let me hang out for a little while longer. The light of heaven is the face of Jesus. The melody of heaven is the name of Jesus. The harmony of heaven is the praise of Jesus. The joy of heaven is the presence of Jesus. The theme of heaven is the work of Jesus. The employment of heaven is the work of the service to his name. And the fullness of heaven is Jesus himself. In John 17, Jesus himself prayed that you would be with him in heaven. He wants you to be there. 
Do you want to be there? I want to close with a quote by Richard Baxter, old Puritan preacher. I, I would encourage you, you can even just close your eyes and listen to his words because I think they're so personally applicable and then we'll sing in response. From heaven's height, the soul surveys the promised land. Looking back on earth, the soul views the dreary wilderness through which it passed. To stand on Mount Memory, comparing heaven with earth, fills the soul with unimaginable gratitude, and it makes it exclaim, is this the inheritance that costs so much of the blood of Christ? It's no wonder. Oh, blessed price, is this the result of believing? Have the gales of grace blown me into such a harbor? Is this where Christ was so eager to bring me? Oh, praise the Lord. Is this the glory of which the scripture spoke and of which ministered preached so much? I see the gospel is indeed good news. Are all my troubles, Satan's temptations, the world's scorns and jeers come to this? Oh, vile nature that resisted so much and so long. Such a blessing. Unworthy soul, is this the place that you came to so unwillingly? Was duty tiresome? Was the world too good to lose? Could you not leave all, deny all, and suffer anything for this? Were you loath to die to come to this? Oh, false heart, you had almost betrayed me to eternal flames and lost me this glory. Are you not ashamed now, my soul, that you ever questioned that love which brought you here? Are you not sorry that you ever quenched his spirit's prompting or misinterpreted his providence or complained about the narrow road that brought you to such a destination? Now you are sufficiently convinced that your blessed Redeemer was saving you as well when he crossed your desires as when he granted them when he broke your heart as when he bound it up. No thanks to you, you unworthy self, for this crown, but thanks be to God alone, and glory be to his name forever and ever. Father, we thank you so much for your word, which has been a rich feast this morning. It always is. And I pray now as we respond in song, that we would sing to the one who is worthy. We would sing to the one that our soul loves. We would sing to the one who purchased our souls. And we would sing to the one who, binding us to himself, ensures that though we die, we never will die. And we will stand before you, along with these saints on that great last day. We love you. We praise you. And we give you thanks in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with us and sing?